Welcome to the first episode of the AACTE podcast. AACTE, the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education, is the leading voice on educator preparation. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Gangone, President and CEO of AACTE, and we are very excited to share new content with you through this platform. In this first series of the podcast, we're highlighting case stories that were first shared at our national conference in 2021 by AACTE members. Each of these studies brings expert insights into a particular theme, and I think there is a lot of value for us as educators and supporters to learn and apply these insights to our own communities as we seek to revolutionize education and educator preparation this year and in years to come. Our first episode features Kelly Hayek, student and alumni support specialist, and doctoral candidates Irene Ann Resinley and Kyle Harrison at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They share a fascinating framework on the joy in teacher education and detail three different cases in which they used joy as one of the primary objectives in their programs. And by the end of this episode, I think you will be challenged to use joy as a lens, not only to view, but also as a means with which to engage the work that we are doing in educator preparation. Here's Kelly, Irene, and Kyle. My name is Kelly Hayek, and I work in the Teacher Education Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Education. I've been in my role for about 14 years, and that role is one of teacher education and supporting pre-service teachers or teacher candidates throughout all of our programs. Hi, I'm Irene Ann Resnley. I'm a fifth grade teacher uh, in suburban, in a middle school in suburban Wisconsin. I'm also a doctoral candidate uh, in the Department of Curriculum Instruction doing social studies education and teacher education at UW-Madison. The work we'll be sharing with you today for me is informed by my nine years as a teacher educator there. And I'm Kyle Harrison. Hello. I'm also a doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction, studying multicultural education and teacher education. I was a classroom teacher in the state of Wisconsin for five years before entering grad school, and I've been doing this teacher education work for going on my fourth year now. And uh, for us, the three of us, this is about our shared work. We've worked together for the past three years doing different kinds of support for pre-service teachers or teacher candidates around reflective practice. And what we recognize is that the crossroads of our work was a shared approach, which is joy. So first to anchor this in our purpose and goal. In the practice of teacher education, much of the daily work is spent on learning through struggle, what might not have been successful in teaching practice, the feeling of a lack of expertise, or societal or institutional forces working against teaching. Through the use of narratives parceled out through autoethnography, we begin to address the following research question. What is the role of joy in teacher education? And we thought with that, that we would go ahead and and define joy, dictionary definition style, which is a feeling of extreme gladness, delight, or exaltation of the spirit arising from a sense of well-being or satisfaction. This proposal draws primarily from two bodies of literature that contextualize the setting for our research and the process through which we are engaging. So an asset or strength-based approach to teaching and teacher education and reflective practice. Scholarship on asset-based and or strength-based approach to teaching investigate a variety of roles, places, and spaces within teacher education. 
Studies have examined the role of the supervisor in field placements, the ways in which meaningful university community relationships foster growth, the intentional valuing the experiences of teacher candidates of color, as well as implementing frameworks imbued with asset-based language for teacher candidates to examine their learning. The essence of reflective practices are the process and embodiment of looking inward at one's experiences, signaling the need for change. In addition to being a central goal within teacher education, reflective practices seek to enable agency and asset-based question asking in an attempt to examine one's positionality within their sphere of work. Through this literature, we seek to contextualize the process of engaging with joy as an asset-based reflective practice in teacher education. So how did we do it? Autoethnography. Autoethnography allows the researcher to examine their beliefs and experiences in an attempt to parcel out salient memories and seek for their deeper meanings within the larger context of society and examine the way in which our narrative selves are culturally constructed. It allows an in-depth look at and understanding of one's experiences, how those experiences fit into the broader societal narrative and why it matters. Autoethnography creates individual opportunities for social change. So what was our approach using autoethnography? Reflecting on and sharing moments of practice is not only something that we facilitate for others, but is a common part of our practice as a team of academic staff and graduate students positioned to offer cross-programmatic support to pre-service teachers. This is an organic way of speaking for us. Embracing Schoen's notion of reflection in action and reflection on action, so reflecting in the moment as well as collectively after the fact, we used the following question to guide our own search for stories, experiences, and moments of practice. What spaces did we discover that offered us the ability to use joy in our practice in supporting pre-service teachers? First, we shared these moments verbally, asking questions to help us identify the values embedded in our moments. We wrote out our stories and repeated that reflective process collaboratively identifying patterns and commonalities, which became the foundational concepts in our protocol for utilizing joy. So we reflected on how we defined and noticed the presence or absence of joy. We then shared our reflections, leading to the collective identification of more and varying opportunities for joy. This then led to the cyclical and iterative process of reflection once again. Ultimately, that resulted in us thinking about a framework for what we were doing. And we, we developed a framework that did use the letters of the word joy. Ultimately, it comes down to three things, naming, claiming, and leveraging. So in terms of naming or jotting down is this idea of what do you notice and why? Really centering in the context is really critical and often overlooked. That was something that was key to the framework. Next is O for own or claiming. Why is this significant to you for your work, for others? reflecting on that's the reflective practice component and then finally the why which is use or leverage in what ways can you use this newfound joy and recognition and use it to be accessible to others through your work with teacher candidates so it's both about this process for us is both about supporting your own practice as a teacher educator or someone supporting pre-service teachers or teacher candidates but it's also about supporting them as well we think it works in both ways and now we're going to start to share our narratives 
So the context for my narrative is the post-observation conversation. So in teacher education programs, few spaces evoke more nerves than a teacher candidate's observation from their supervisor. And few conversations are laden with more vulnerability than the post-observation debrief. I was fortunate to work in an elementary education program where the supervisors ran weekly seminars. Before we all ever stepped foot into a classroom together, we had the space to get to know each other over time in the university. Things like our favorite seminar snacks, the typical spots we would sit in in the university classrooms, the strengths we brought to the work of teaching, the questions that persisted about schooling, the best or most convenient coffee shop near campus in pre-COVID times, and afternoon preparing for Friday night weekend grocery shopping routines. Yet still, when I walked into their classroom with their cooperating teacher, I was met with CTs so lovingly pepping up their student teachers to me and teacher candidates nervously reviewing their lesson plans. So after the lesson, we would begin our triad, right? Our conversation, our meeting between teacher candidate, cooperating teacher, and me, the university-based supervisor. The format of the triad meeting changed over my nine years as a teacher educator, sometimes focusing on students' pre-stated goals, sometimes working through problems of practice, other times addressing immediate issues that emerged in a lesson. However, one part of the triad meeting remained consistent in my practice over that entire time, and that was the insistence on starting with joy. I would always frame this as my thing as their supervisor to bring kind of a levity and predictability to the conversation. I would say things like, that was amazing to see you in action. So you know I believe with starting with the joy. What went well in your lesson? I would typically nudge them to say at least three things, regardless of how easy or difficult it was for the teacher candidate to name them. If they started to question the joy or bring something constructive to it, I would immediately redirect them back to the joy. Okay, wait, joy first. I want us to spend as much time really enjoying the joy before we move on to learning from the things that felt hard. Every time without fail, the cooperating teacher would jump in for joy, pun intended, and mm -hmm. echo the same sentiments. I would offer fierce nods and short words of affirmation. Almost always, the teacher candidates talked about joy in the passive voice or would name it sort of through a student first. So after we noticed and celebrated, I would ask, and what did you do to allow that joy to happen? This would bring up conversations about thoughtful planning, relationship to students, building on previous knowledge and learning, et cetera, all deeply connected to their values as teachers. Once we did this, we would then move into talking about problems of practice. So this was absolutely my favorite part of the triad conversation. As simple as this may sound, it was something difficult to recalibrate sort of the nature of the debrief space away from that of stress to one of success. Anchoring the conversation in joy was not just about feeling good, though let's be honest, as, as teachers, we need that too. It was about building comfort and safety in a team of discussion partners. Authentically talking about joy helped support feelings of security that could also foster vulnerability in more difficult conversations. Moreover, and perhaps for me even more importantly, discussing joy as fiercely as discussing struggle helped teacher candidates develop a sense of agency. Our questions help surface values they have as teachers, values that help them stand confident in the uniqueness of their practice and allow them to see that joy is not an accident. Success doesn't just happen, they are active in creating it. 
As teacher educators and classroom teachers, we know that the time as a team in a triad is really precious. All too often, joy is seen as superfluous in the teacher learning process, particularly in that space. But when leveraged intentionally, I believe that building the foundations for this skill and this value not only foster agency for teacher candidates, but it has the potential to support a lifelong love of our very demanding profession in an endless sea of trying and inequitable contexts. It might even help stave off burnout. I'm going to talk about the second story, which is drop-in support for a high-stakes assessment. So Wisconsin started requiring the EdTPA for licensure in 2016. For those of you who might not know, the EdTPA is a high-stakes assessment that seeks to capture a snapshot of a teacher candidate's teaching practice. They're asked to design a three-to-five lesson learning segment for their classroom, keeping in mind their students' strengths and needs teach it with an eye toward building respect and rapport, deepening learning, and supporting academic language demands, and then assess it to determine learning outcomes with an eye toward three representative focal students. This assessment is time-consuming during one of their most formative experiences, student teaching. It also carries the burden of understanding the contextual structure of this assessment, its language and logistics. The NTPA handbook is 60 pages long. We noticed immediately how stressed our students became in student teaching. We quickly formed a support team and conducted weekly drop-in sessions for uh, teacher candidates in the hours following a full day of student teaching. They'd come to us fatigued, overwhelmed, and full of questions. Many stories of time spent working with students over the course of three years came to mind when I was choosing my story, but today I want to highlight one in particular. A student teacher in our special education program had come to a drop-in session, and she sat at a table a few over from where I sat. Let me first paint a visual picture of drop-in. We're in a room with many tables spread out. Student teachers work at tables in groups and also individually. One of the tables is set up with snacks key, food is key, both the decadent kind, chocolate, and the sustaining kind, almonds. The environment is informal. Student teachers can ask questions anytime of us, of each other, and they can move around as needed and put headphones on if they want to eliminate possibility of verbal distractions. At one of the tables, a student teacher was not asking questions, but her face communicated anxiety and stress very clearly. I walked over to check in, I asked her how it was going, and she told me she was on task three, which is the final task, and just realized she had not assessed her student in relation to what she was teaching. She was trying to figure out what to do next. Do I have to start over, she asked with tears in her eyes, or could I go back and do a test with them now? I provided reassurance that we'd work together to form a plan that would work. And then I told her, at least for the moment, put the NTPA aside. I asked her, can you just tell me a little bit more about what you were teaching the student? She began to talk about what she'd been doing, why that particular learning goal was appropriate in supporting a just right challenge for her student. As she talked, her voice started to become steady and sure. So you just named what you wanted to teach and why it was important for the student, I said. So what happened next? How did it go? She began to describe what she knew about her student's understanding. I asked her a few more questions to support her in articulating how she knew where the student was at in relation to the learning. She was working with her student to develop an understanding of the rotation of the earth in relation to day and night and the seasons. She showed me a drawing the student had done as part of an assignment and how it helped her understand both what the student knew and what was still confusing. I then pivoted. Okay, let's come back to the EdTPA. It asks you to talk about an assessment you conducted that demonstrates their learning. How did you assess? She looked down at the student's drawing, looked up at me and smiled with relieved joy. 
She said, I thought the assessment had to be a formal summative assessment, like a multiple choice test. It can be anything that tells me what they know. Shockingly, the formal structure and language of the EdTPA had her presuming that assessment was something defined solely externally, that what was best for her student would be determined by the EdTPA. A key element of my support was helping her recenter her teaching in relation to the EdTPA. Though the EdTPA seeks to center teaching, the high stakes nature of it often does the opposite. In our programs, teacher candidates shift from being students to being teachers. Our job is to find ways to help them develop their teacher identities and become reflective practitioners. There's space to do that, even within us supporting a prescriptive high stakes assessment. Doing so requires providing a non-evaluative space with supportive question asking, with affirmational noticing. Sometimes when a student teacher is naming and claiming their practice with a clear focus on core values and goals for students, we stop and simply say, do you realize how much you sound like a teacher? And watch for their response. Their body posture changes and their tone goes from ending sentences with a question with their tone lilting up to ending them with periods and surety and sometimes even exclamation points. Evoking and supporting their teacher identities can provide them with a foundational joy that will support them as they navigate inevitable challenges and external requirements as practitioners. In summation, coming back to our framework, by helping this candidate name what she understood about her student's learning, it allowed her to claim with joy that she had in fact assessed her student. This supported her in leveraging ownership of her practice in navigating the EdTPA. In our third story, I'm gonna focus around the possibility that a seminar space can have for engaging in community and family, engaging in discussions around community and family engagement while the seminar is in the community. So at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, seminars um, vary in specifics from program to program, but are largely conceived of and carried out as time spent gathering together as a cohort, anywhere between one to four times a month, depending on where the cohort is along their trajectory within their program. This time traditionally has been spent, in part, engaging in reflective practices as teacher candidates muse on their noticings and wonderings from their time in their practicum or student teaching classroom, and then make connections between these noticings and the larger world and societal forces in which our classrooms, and therefore our students, operate in. Oftentimes, these seminar spaces are responsive to both the wonderings of the teacher candidates, as well as to the immediate needs and happenings in the local community, while being carefully guided and structured by the program cohort faculty and or graduate student supervisors. One way in which seminars are used is to help teacher candidates better understand their own conceptions of school, family, and community, and how they are bringing those into their teaching. This, in turn, begins the work of reflective engagement with both one's positionality and its relationship to the classroom. Working with a recent cohort during their first semester of practicum teaching, they spent their penultimate seminar of the semester on a tour of a brand new elementary school in the area. These teacher candidates were just finishing up their first semester of classroom teaching, being observed, and were prepared to ask questions, make comparisons to their own classrooms and schools, although in a separate district, and continue to notice that which they had not noticed or thought of prior to the school tour. State-of-the-art in all senses. This school featured movable partitions within classrooms that also opened up to the hallways where smart boards were plenty, and a multiple dedicated makerspaces adjacent to and separate from the library, and a brand new energy-efficient green HVAC system 
that was positioned behind transparent plexiglass to allow for mini field trips for the student science and environmental classes. While on the tour, which was given to us by the building principal, we were reminded multiple times of the commitment from the community that was, in large part, what brought this new school to fruition. During and upon completion of touring this new elementary school, it would have been easy for someone to take notice and think to themselves, wow, this community must really value so-and-so because of this and that. But returning to campus and seminar the following week, the teacher candidate shared artifacts related to their reflections throughout the semester, including ideas related to family and community engagement. Using joy as a lens to view, as well as a means with which to engage the work, required a shifting of understanding of what might be valued in a community, and by default, the families living in that community. Joy is not necessarily the product of a brand new building filled with working equipment and smart boards, but is a part of one's disposition that is both a result of and necessary for engagement and learning. Recognizing joy not as a function intimately connected to materiality, but rather as the embodiment of a dispositional approach to the work of teaching and teacher education allows for a broader application of the concept in ways that are both novel and underappreciated. By naming that joy, so to end on the framework that my colleagues have, by naming that joy can take on multiple forms and appear different ways for different people, it allows the teacher candidates to claim joy in many different spaces and in many different forms. This then supports them in leveraging their own understandings with that of their schools and communities. So to end for now, in revisiting our framework, we invite you to continue to embrace your noticings. How does our JOY framework for supporting pre-service teachers fit within your own work and practice? How does it support your own teaching and learning? What do you notice? Why is that significant? And how can it be used for your practice? Thanks for joining us for this episode of the AACTE podcast. If you'd like to learn more about revolutionizing education and our annual conference, please visit our website at aacte.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AACTE. There are more episodes coming your way, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any new episodes. We hope you'll join us again next time.